What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Venezuela has two presidents right now. The first one is a dictator who's clinging to power, and the second is an opposition leader who has declared himself president. There are huge protests in the streets, and just to make things a little bit interesting, President Trump has picked a side. So today on the show, we're going to talk about how things got so bad in Venezuela and what it means that the U.S. is getting involved in their constitutional crisis. This is Worldly from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Hola. Let's start from the beginning here, right, with the incumbent president, the one who's being challenged right now, a guy named Nicolas Maduro. What's the backstory about him? So he took power after his political mentor, Hugo Chavez, died. Yeah, all right. So some context on Chavez, please, would probably be important here. So Chavez was a legitimately elected leader of Venezuela. He was pretty much hated by the United States for a long time, mostly because he used a socialist leader. Not just a socialist, though. He was a kind of very particular authoritarian socialism. Yes, exactly right. And to go along with that, I mean, when he came to power, he started to dismantle the checks and balances on his authority. He took control of the oil companies. And that was important for him because Venezuela has huge oil reserves and an oil boom in the mid-2000s helped Venezuela's economy skyrocket. And so Chavez's authority was, again, unchallenged and based solely on the fact that his country was booming under his watch. Right. And, I mean, he was wildly popular and still is considered pretty legendary in Venezuela, right? Because he took a lot of that oil money and— as a socialist, uh, redistributed that to help a lot of the poorer people, a lot of, like, social welfare programs, things like that. Then Maduro comes in. He's the hand-picked successor of Chavez. He comes to power through an election that many consider kind of iffy. It wasn't really competitive. But, you know, he's Chavez's successor, so he had a lot of support in the beginning, at least among the people. But then the economy hits a really big speed bump. And essentially, Alex, like you said, the economy was largely based on oil, Global oil prices drop, which means that all of a sudden their entire economy is essentially based on this and it's hit really hard. And Maduro doesn't make things any better. He basically doubles down and makes a series of like decisions with like economic, fiscal policy and with politics that turn the people pretty much against him. So he, not only does he make the economic crisis worse, he also does things like packs the Supreme Court with his cronies, and then they turn around and 
undercut the the Congress that it's called the National Assembly there, basically takes away their power to like have any say on the economy. So he's expanding his power and also not running the economy well. He then tries to dissolve the National Assembly entirely. Uh, that fails. There's like this big international outcry. He's like, okay, 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 we'll put it back. But hey, what if we actually create a different thing that's not that, that can rewrite the Constitution so that I have even more power? So he does these series of really not democratic, pretty kind of quasi-authoritarian political moves while crime is skyrocketing, while this economic crisis is skyrocketing. Basically, Venezuela goes from being this super rich country that everyone thought was going to be like the next big regional player to being a humanitarian disaster. It's hard to overstate how bad the economic crisis in Venezuela is. People have to line up for basic goods like toilet paper for hours. Basically, the entire country, statistically, is living under the poverty line, which is unimaginable in a country that has massive oil reserves, a country that is so lucky, naturally, is currently experiencing the worst depression around the globe. Hyperinflation is rampant. It's not just the oil problem. It's mismanagement of the currency right. uh, yeah. due it to some weird exchange worse. rate policies. Yeah, it's so this is all this one ideological project called Chavismo that's been after Chavez, obviously. It's been going on for almost two decades now. And this is the crisis of Chavismo, right, of the simultaneous attempt to destroy the opposition and to implement a particular vision of socializing the economy. And uh, since about 2002, the Chavista and Maduro hold on power has been pretty tight. But now there's a new opposition figure who's challenging things. Right. What's the crisis point? Like, what brought this to a head? So what happens is, is last May, there was an election that Maduro called early, and it was seen around the world as illegitimate. Countries from within Latin America, the United States, Europe, all said it was basically a sham election. Didn't he, like, make two of the most popular opposition candidates, like, ban them from running? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so not exactly a competitive fair election. Right. So what happens here is that because there's this international outcry, the opposition, again, there's been a healthy opposition— takes advantage of this. And so there's a guy, an unlikely, I guess, resistance leader in this story. His name is Juan Guaido. Juan Guaido, based on a whole bunch of weird backroom deals, becomes this consensus head of the National Assembly, right? He's not the most popular figure in, in the opposition res resistance movement, but he's the guy that they can all agree, fine, he can sort of lead this National Assembly that doesn't really matter. Because there is this international outcry about that election, he makes this pretty stark claim. He says Maduro is not the legitimate leader of Venezuela. What he does is he cites this really odd statute in the Venezuelan constitution, which basically says that if there isn't a legitimate leader of Venezuela or if like, the current president is unable to perform the duties because of mental illness or whatnot, then the interim president of Venezuela is the head of the National Assembly. Ergo, me, Juan Guaido. <laughs> <laughs> right. How convenient. Yes. So what's happening now is Guaido says, hey, Venezuelans who hate Maduro, which, by the way, Maduro's approval ratings, like, just don't go above 20% now. That's really bad. Really, really <laughs> bad. That's actually shockingly high, given how bad the economy <laughs> yeah, is. Right? One out of five, actually. Yeah. Like, you want to talk to one out of those five. So Guaido says, hey— people of Venezuela, go out and protest Maduro and show him that he should step down and also support me as the interim president. Importantly here, what Guaido keeps saying is, I am going to be a temporary leader of Venezuela. I'm going to help our economic situation in the short term and in the long term, or medium term, I guess, set up a free and fair election to vote in the next leader of Venezuela. 
Right. Pinky promise. I'm not going to stay in power and just seize power. This isn't a coup. Like, I am following the Constitution. He also makes this interesting argument, too, that, like, yeah, it's in the Constitution, but also, like, look at these thousands of people who are coming out to the street. And Alex, you wrote a piece about this and, and made a really great point when you talked to some experts that Guaido was relatively unknown, but he started giving these speeches and hundreds of people started showing up. And these speeches went relatively viral, and a lot of people started seeing him. You know, he's young. He's, you know, 35. People started seeing him as, like, maybe their country's, like, Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, there's a Wall Street— Change, we can believe it. Yeah, there's a Wall Street Journal piece, oddly written by Mike Pence, about America's support for the protesters, which we'll get to. And, like, the photo, one of these photos is Guaido, you know, with his hand up in front of this massive crowd. And, like, these kinds of photos are proliferating around Venezuela. So, like, this guy, who no one really knew, like, even a year ago, is now sort of the resistance leader of the country. Maduro doesn't see things that way, right? From his point of view, this is an extra-constitutional coup directed against him, despite the fact that he has military support, for now anyway. So it's not a military coup. It would be some kind of legalistic coup in his language, right? But he's like, dude, I held an election. And I won. I'm the president. Like, fuck you guys. Now, of course— You can't do this. Again, it was not a competitive election, but nonetheless, he is not giving up. And now there are massive protests, and there are also people supporting him. Yeah, so— On Wednesday, Guaido called for these, like, massive protests in, you know, cities across Venezuela. And tens of thousands of people came out to the streets. And, you know, you can see uh, there's this one shot of these protests in Caracas in the capital. And it's just like this, essentially looks like, you know, swimming two rivers of people coming around this building. It's just massive. It's even hard to explain when you think of protests in the U.S., like, even the biggest protests, they don't look like this. And Guaido picked January 23rd for a reason, which is the 61st anniversary of when a military dictatorship fell in Venezuela. It's supposed to be highly symbolic, right? Come on out, take down this dictator, Maduro, on the same day that a military dictatorship fell. It's this weird situation, right, where you have massive opposition-led protests and an opposition leader declaring himself president— But that president is not actually in control of the state or the security apparatus, which hasn't intervened, right? The military has been on Maduro's side for a while now. We just, it's not clear who the actual president is. Like, Maduro seems to wield power, but Guaido seems to have more popular support and is calling himself president. And many of the surrounding countries, pretty much all of the countries in the region, have recognized him as the legitimate leader, including in North America, the United States. Yeah, and on Wednesday, President Trump himself officially weighed in, released a statement, Today, I am officially recognizing the president of the Venezuelan National Assembly, Juan Guaido, as the interim president of Venezuela. So pretty straightforward there. The president of the United States straight up coming out and saying, the elected leader of this country is not the president. He is illegitimate. And this opposition leader who claims the authority is the president and has the backing of the United States, which whether you like Trump or not, the backing of the president of the United States saying that you are the legitimate leader of a country is really, really powerful. Yeah, it's huge. And then his claim was followed by like Canada, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Colombia, like a lot of countries have come out and officially said, no, Juan Guaido is the official interim president of Venezuela. Look, I want to talk a little bit about what it means for the U.S. to get involved in this, because it already seems to have escalated tensions to a degree, right? On Wednesday, Maduro threw 
U.S. diplomats out of the country, giving them 72 hours to leave. But then the Trump administration said American diplomats are not leaving and called on the Venezuelan military to protect them. So, like, it seems to have injected another avenue of chaos into an already uncertain situation. We also, shortly before Trump made his statement, saw Vice President Mike Pence issue this video that was pretty stark. He comes out and says, Hola, I'm Mike Pence, the Vice President of the United States. And on behalf of President Donald Trump, and all the American people. Let me express the unwavering support of the United States as you, the people of Venezuela, raise your voices in a call for freedom. Nicolas Maduro is a dictator with no legitimate claim to power. He's never Those kind of statements can be really positive, right? Like, it's very clear that, like, they're standing up for the democratic process, which is great. But it also could have really dangerous consequences. Absolutely. And by the way, Ola, I'm Mike Pence are my favorite four words an American like <laughs> oh official God. has ever said. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's not to take away from the point. It is dangerous in the sense that if these protesters feel that they have the military backing of the United States, and they are somewhat legitimate to say that and think that because Trump in 2017 said, I am considering a military option for Venezuela. Like, so if these protesters feel that the U.S. may come to their aid in case the Maduro's military comes at them. They may take risks they might not otherwise take. This is a minimal risk, mind you, but it is one nonetheless. Right, and, like and if the, they, just to make that clear, like if they think, oh, the U.S. government has just said, like we will back up your push to overthrow your government, and then they do that and they get into clashes and the U.S. does not actually come in to help, We've seen that happen in other cases before, uh, in George H.W. Bush administration with Iraq. Like, it proceeded to be a slaughter when the government then does step in to completely crack down and repress this uprising. And the U.S. says, oh, no, we didn't actually, like, mean we were going to, like, involve ourselves militarily. And people get slaughtered. And that's, like, the really big fear here is does the U.S. mean what it says and how far are they willing to go to back this up, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm of two minds on this. On the one hand, like, all of those risks are real. And also, let's not forget, the U.S. track record of intervening in Venezuela and Latin America more broadly is really bad. Oh, right? pretty, like much have, pretty much anywhere. We have a, a lot of places. But there we have a particularly long history of backing to support military coups, uh, authoritarian governments, yep. human rights abusers. Like, that's what the U.S. has done, especially during the Cold War in Latin America. Uh, on the flip side, it is hard to imagine a government that is worse than Maduro's, given the way that Venezuelans are suffering right now. And if the U.S. can play a role in ushering that government out of power and, and supporting you know, democracy, to, yeah, and yeah. actually doing what the U.S. is supposed to be doing, right. like according to its own statements and principles, like I'm all for that. I just I don't know if I have the faith in Trump and, and let's be real, Mike Pence, who has been spearheading this policy for the administration to execute on a really delicate strategy. I, I agree. I shed no tears for Maduro, right, during this entire thing. I'm sure neither of you do. But I am concerned about what, for me, is the central issue here, which is, sure, the United States supports Guaido, so do a bunch of other countries. But as we've said, Maduro's still in control. He still has institutional control over the military, over and courts. And the military's pretty, pretty much loyal to him, right? There so was, far, yeah. There was, like, a little, I think, there was an uprising of, like, a few officers who tried to do yeah, something, the, right? You, you wrote, you reported about this. There was a small little mutiny that was quickly quelled and, 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 and right, it went but away. It, so it, in large part, he still has a lot of power right. and the loyalty of the military. Yeah. So that, again, my question is the fundamental question of political science, which is, so what? Like, <laughs> right? So what if we support Guaido? Like, Maduro's not going anywhere. 
how do you actually dislodge him from power? Is he going to abdicate? Are we expecting regional militaries to come and intervene? Are we going to intervene? Like, I don't know right. how what this happens ends. Next? I don't know what happens now. I get sort of the our stance, right? The stance in the, is good, but I don't know what happens next. And and what worries me is there are some pretty dire predictions of what's coming. Yeah, I don't I don't think anyone does. I um was checking in yesterday on the Twitter feed of a longtime Latin America reporter named Vincent Bevins, and he said he had been talking to sources in Venezuela and asked them what do they think is going to happen. And the response that he got from all of them was, no one knows. Anything, anything could happen. And that, it's both hopeful given how terrible things are in Venezuela, but it's also scary given that Syria and other places like that show that however bad things may be, they still can get worse. Yeah, and when dictators officially decide that they are going to cling to power at any and all costs, like we saw in Syria— then you see civil wars, right? But you can also see in Egypt when Mubarak, right, Hosni Mubarak, faced the same situation and after a short amount of time, stepped down, right? So it can go several different ways. There could also be a third way, right? Like there could be they come to some sort of agreement. Maduro agrees to hold a new election and he runs again, but like at least it's more legitimate or something like that, right? I think there are other options in the middle besides full-on regime change, or full-on civil war. So this is shaping up to be one of the most important foreign policy situations of the Trump administration so far, and we're going to keep a close eye on it. But now we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up our Musical Elsewhere series with a really interesting take on This Is America in Nigeria. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. We're continuing this week with our fourth and final installment of our segment on music from around the world and what it tells us about the countries that it came from. Now, this time we're going to listen to a song that may sound a little bit familiar at first. So that's a Nigerian version of Childish Gambino's This Is America by an artist named Falls. How do you spell that? F-A-L-Z. And while the original song was about institutional and social racism inside the United States, the Nigerian version is about financial corruption and the use of the state to enrich public officials. So let's break it down. This is Nigeria. Where am Madame Philomena? Money vanished for your office. That is six million. You toss in an animal. Okay, so what's going on there? Yeah, this is one of my favorite lyrics from the song. He's saying, Madam Philomena, money vanished from your office. That's an incident where a public official uh, named Philomena, 36 million in Nigerian currency disappeared from her office. And when people asked where it went, presumably she took it, she said, a snake ate it. Yes, a snake ate my money. Sorry, 36 million in Nigerian currency, a snake one snake ate that? Uh, presumably, yes. That, is a that very, must be a very large snake. That loves paper. Yeah, this is an interesting version of Dog Ate My Homework. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's what right. I was thinking. This is a real official, and that's a real excuse that she made. And it, you know, in the song, it's illustrating just how broken the government is, that you can brazenly lie and say, a snake ate my money. 
but there's more too in the song and it, it, the lyrics are really dense with meaning and references so what's that about the police station? Yeah, what's they, going on there? They close by six. Okay, not actually, right? It's it's more about their the lack of resources and the corruption of the institutions. So like, at one point, this is a real incident, not just an exaggeration. Like in the song, the police headquarters had to save money on diesel, and so the lights went out. Right, like there was no power in the police station after dark in one. And it it illustrates how under-resourced vital Uh, public institutions are because largely of corruption. And like politicians, uh, billions and billions, and they don't go to prison is basically what he's saying. Correct, yes. Well, because of those snakes, they keep taking the money. Right, right. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that the Nigerian government was not super thrilled with Falsa Song. No, in fact, it got banned on public radio. There there were a few different arguments the government offered. One is that its depiction of ethnic tensions in Nigeria was offensive, uh, which I really don't think it was, and neither do experts in Nigeria who were talking about it. And the the sort of more obvious reason is the government didn't like it, right? Because it and, made them look bad, right? I mean, if, if you're t- calling all politicians and all, and all the institutions of the state criminal, I mean, yeah, that would make sense, right? Yeah, <laughs> they sent him a note saying it was banned for being insulting to the government. But when we talk about the ethnic tensions, I, I think it's really important to point out, if you watch the video, the part of the government's claim was that it was offensive because there was a beheading scene and there were women dancing in hijabs and they were like that's a really offensive like characterization of the ethnic tensions that are going on in Nigeria right yeah that was their argument right. but i i just don't think that's true the first thing debatable the beheading i think uh it's it, that was a designed to reference tensions with herders the fulani tribesmen who have been in conflict with other nigerians and killing them and the second thing the hijabs that's a reference to a case you may be familiar with of women being abducted by the militant group Boko Haram and disappeared, young girls specifically from schools. And the government didn't do nearly enough initially in the eyes of a lot of Nigerians to deal with these abductions. Right. So this is all like a bunch of stuff. I mean, everything from like shitty infrastructure, the corruption of the government, the police, the you know failure of the government to handle ethnic conflict appropriately. Like this is all jam-packed into this one single song, right? I find that when we depict countries in Africa or whoever it may be, it's always about these kinds of issues, right? Corruption, et cetera, et cetera. What we rarely talk about are the kind of movements on the ground that oppose these forces, right? right. Like Fault's song shows that there is a, a wellspring of people who are upset with the way Nigerian government or this kind of governance happens. Uh, and that they're, the fact that there are experts in Nigeria that support the song, surely people you know that listened, that wanted to listen to it support the song and what it represents. Right. I think what's really important, I think that's a great point, is that you mentioned this uh, before we started taping, Alex, that like you've seen versions of this song being done for a whole bunch of countries, right? When Zach brought up this song, I started YouTubing, not this one, and then all of a sudden, you know, recommended to watch like all these countries. I went down a real big rabbit hole and they all kind of go to their country's problems and they show their societal ills. And it's showing, I think, in this particular case with the this is X country phenomenon, like in this format, you can very creatively through video and through song go at the issues of your country and perform, uh, in a way, a service to, to the citizenry. 
And so that's it for our musical series. I want to thank all of you for staying with us as we try this little experiment, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you think of the music series and serialized elsewheres in general at our email, worldlyatvox.com. And just so you know, we do read all of your emails, even if we don't get a chance to reply to all of them in a super timely manner. Please keep sending them in. We read them, we love them, and we do incorporate your feedback into our decisions. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, uh, and I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly, wherever you get your podcasts. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.